afternoon, universe, and welcome to another week of Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition, breaking down the stronghold bad opinions of the enemy and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and we're going to continue studying Christian dogma, committed to the belief that when our God speaks, he speaks in order that we would be able to speak back to him again, to know what he thinks, to have the mind of Christ, to confess that his same say his word, and in that word, find life itself. St. Paul tells us to hunger for the truth, to watch our life and doctrine closely, and he warns us the times are coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. But in order to suit their own desires, they'll gather teachers around them to say whatever their itching ears are longing to hear. He says, Christian, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to don't go off chasing what your flesh wants. Instead, find the trustworthy word as it has always been taught, that golden line of confession going all the way through history, but certainly established from the text of Holy Scripture itself. And join your mind to that. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in what our Lord has said, which means really who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Now we're doing this. We're studying this dogma by looking at a classic dogmatician, Dr. Pastor Francis Pieper, his Christian Dogmatics, Volume 1. Today we're going to be picking up at page 42 and reading through basically the middle of page 43. To help me make heads or tails of this confession of the faith from of old, we have some regular guests. You know these gentlemen by now. Pastor Adam Filipek. He's pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church. They're both up there in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. And Pastor Timothy Winterstein, he's pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington. That's Washington State, not Washington, D.C. Uh, gentlemen, well, welcome to Cross Defense. Good to have you ba- both back on again. Good to be here. Thanks. Thank you, Jonathan. It's good to be with you. Yeah, Amen, amen. It's always good to hear you guys' voices. So, we left off last week with a, a new section, right? And it's... As much as it's new, it's old. And this is true on a number of levels. In one sense, you never really get too far away from the center of Christian theology, of Christian truth. It always is coming back to Jesus. It's always coming back to his word. But there are these levels or these layers to it that we we move into. And so what Dr. Pieper is trying to establish now is this word theology— Theologos, from both the Greek uh, God and knowledge or God and words about God, is, even though it's not a biblical term, it is a term that talks about things the Bible says, right? Kind of like the word Trinity. And so it is, in this sense, useful, but it also has some some jeopardy, some, some footfalls. It's a place where you can trip up, particularly as the modern world has come to use the word to really mean anything that anybody says about God, right? That that would be theology, or, or to believe that theology is a thing that's changing, that it's growing. And we're going to get a little bit more of that toward the end of our section today, but then particularly we're going to be looking at, at these four types of really Christian theology that he says are good, that we can use the term this way. Do you, in, in your study and your prep for today, guys, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? What are your thoughts leading into what we're going to be looking at today? Well, I think uh, theology um, I mean, in a sense, everyone is a, a theologian. It's a question of whether, you know, because you hear people say sometimes, well, I'm not a theologian, but they're thinking in terms of sort of the ivory tower or some academic theologians who spend their time uh, thinking up arcane uh, rules for how we can talk about God or not. But in one sense, we are, anybody who thinks or says anything about God is a theologian, and uh, the question is, is that theology alongside the the word of god does it match up does it does it fit the rule or measure of the faith 
We talked about that a little bit last week, that almost anytime someone starts off by saying, I'm no theologian, that they're planning to tell you theology anyway, and uh, maybe they shouldn't be. I think that the etymology is against us in recent years, maybe in the last 50 to 100 years. But what I mean by etymology is the development of a word and its roots, how things develop in usage of language, because we have come to associate uh, the last part of this Greek word logos of theology with um, study of, if you will. Science, and right? So when we, yeah, exactly, exactly. So this is taken on very scientific connotations. So when you look at theology, and we're talking even about etymologies, then we think of theos, God, and then we think logos, uh, study of, so it's always the study of God. But Peter's going to point out something very specific here, that in order to study God, you must study the only true God revealed to us in scriptures. And so we're going to see that if you're studying ideas about yourself, if you're studying ideas about false gods and what you think about God, then you're actually not studying God at all. There is only one God, and his name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's something about what you just said there that I, I think really puts a finger on something that's bothered me even since I was I was young and maybe even foolish, maybe even not a Christian, that we, you think about it, the study of God, like what, under a microscope? I mean, how do I, the, this ant, this flea, study the almighty creator? And it, a lot of how we approach church together now, and I think this is a very modern world reality, is as if we could. So you think about adult instruction class, you think about confirmation class, you think about Bible study, you think even about a good sermon, and it's all sort of in this pure knowledge thing. And it's not that the knowledge isn't there, don't get me wrong, I mean, the text of the Bible's words, they have meanings, but it's almost like we've over-systematized the ideas about God and lost some of what they mean? Yeah, I think think the you know, where I like to start, uh, it may not work completely, perfectly, grammatically, but where I like to start is with John 1, because you have the Word of God there, and the way that we know anything about the true God is because that Word is taken on flesh and uh, and it interpreted to us who God is. Uh, and so um, it, th- that's the place to start, not in not in where... Um, what we are study, like starting from below, but what is it that's actually been given to us? And uh, from there, we we might actually say some true things because it, they've been given to us to say. I think that Tim is right on on this one. He has kind of articulated more of theology as a confession of God rather than a study of God. And that's sort of where this is all going. I think that, Jonathan, you're picking up on some of this really enlightenment, and the Lutherans are just as guilty for this. We have made our talk about God, the doctrines of God, such an academic exercise, rather than seeing it as you're being formed into living a life in Christ. We've treated it more as a classroom exercise. So some of the words that we use associated with how the faith is passed down, how it is confessed one generation to the next, uh, is totally against us. It, it's definitely scientific and Enlightenment rationalistic stuff, such, such as what you said, adult instruction, Bible study, Sunday school. I mean, all of those things 
tip their hand in that direction. Yeah, like like, and how smart do you have to be to join a Lutheran church? I mean, do, do, is that a, is that a, a level? I mean, do you got to pass a class? Is that really what it comes down to? And I, don't get me wrong, I, I think there's definitely a place for catechesis for for teaching the faith, but to to as you said, to take the the hat tip for what catechesis or teaching means from the American context of education rather than from what scripture itself says about these things. I mean, how, how much of catechesis is not, well, Sunday school, but is in fact just being in the liturgical setting where the pastor is proclaiming what the texts of scripture say to the whole community and then going up and kneeling down where the Lord's Supper is. I mean, to think of that as the true place of theologizing, I, I'm not sure we're really even comfortable with that. Um, also with that then, I mean, and it reminds me of, I remember a time, it was one of the, I think the second parish I was serving, there were a bunch of resources I found in a cupboard, including some some ashtrays, which I thought was really fascinating. But anyway, there, there was this, this study guide or this study tool for teaching the faith to, I think, for confirmation kids. And it reminded me of like a physics handbook. I mean, there were diagrams and there were like bullet points. The thing was so complex. I thought, man, the average 12-year-old is going to be like, their brain's going to turn off as soon as I try to like teach this to them. And I, and I don't think the problem is 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 so much, again, teaching, but it's almost like we've, we've overcomplicated what amounts to a history, a narrative, an identity. Uh, that it wraps itself up in, as you said, you know, the word who became flesh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, you, I mean, you see this all the I mean, th- why do kids who come to uh, confirmation instruction, <laughs> uh, they, they view it as just another thing. You know, they've sat in school all day, and now they're coming to another class, and they got to pass a test. And, uh, and the same thing, I think, with adults. Like, here we're, we're, we're getting you some information we're, we're, whereas I really, I really like the old model, ancient model, really, of people are evangelized. That is, they have a, a relationship with a person who's a Christian. That person is sort of their guide into what the Christian faith means, what it means to, to hear and believe and live as a Christian. They bring them in. The pastor teaches, here's what the faith is and what it looks like, and then they enter into a life it's a it's a life it's not it's and i think that may be part of the problem as well is that uh, we tend to view uh christianity as part of our lives we have we have a, we have lives and god and church somehow fit in there and uh it becomes part of our life a greater or lesser part but it's instead of viewing the christian faith jesus as our life and how does everything else fit into that? There's a book by Dr. David Scare from Concordia Fort Wayne. I don't remember the name of it, but it's about how the book, the the book of Matthew, the biblical book of Matthew, can be understood as the early church's catechism. That it was the it was the text they used to teach the faith. And zealous as I was, I decided I would try teaching my confirmation class by using that first. And then going to the the text of the small catechism second as sort of affirmation and dwelling mostly on the Luther's small catechism and not the back end. There's a bunch of other questions at the back that are valuable, but they're very instruction oriented uh, and and, kind of only going to that if I had to. And I remember being taken to task by a parent who was upset that I wasn't teaching that, that back section of the catechism, even though I was teaching Matthew. Right. It was, and I found it so interesting that I was trying to say, well, I'm teaching the same stuff, but I'm using the 
the Bible as a whole book, and I'm trying to show how the whole thing ties to the narrative of Jesus. And they're like, yeah, but I learned this part when I was a kid. I want them to learn that. Yeah. So, uh, so I teach them that at home. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I did. I, I assigned the back as homework for the parents to teach, yeah. <laughs> which was great. Anyway, so yeah, you want to respond? I liked him succinct thought about how we try to incorporate God into our lives and fit him into our lives, mm. rather than understanding that the Christian life, the Christian faith, is our incorporation into the life of Christ. So expound on that. Go deeper. So when you actually look at history, and history being uh, from the creation of the world to the resurrection, in all of the Old and New Testament, you see most distinctly put John chapter 20, verse 31, that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing in him you may have life in his name. So this, this is God's story, and God creates the world, and he creates it with you in it, and, and for you and him to be in that relationship together. And when we fall into sin in the Garden of Eden, then that relationship is severed. And the rest of the Old Testament is spent on how are we going to get back into the God's presence? And the answer is we're not. By ourselves, we cannot do it. And so since we can't do it, what's God going to do? And so, so from Genesis 3.15, we spend the rest of the Old Testament basically looking at where is this promised seed of the woman, where is this promised child who's going to crush the head of the serpent and then finally restore to us the land or the presence of God. And so we spend the whole time, so you get this whole promised land narrative, you have this whole genealogies, and most of the people uh, who read the Bible tend to like skip over the genealogies, but I love Genesis chapter 5, because in Genesis chapter 4 we have Cain and Abel, and in, in that whole section when, when you have the woman, Eve, give birth to uh, Cain, she says, I have you know, gotten a man, the Lord, so she's talking about, Luther does a great job of talking about how this is the fulfillment of the promise. He believes that this is Genesis 3.15 fulfilled. But you see that it's not, because Cain murders his brother, and then things are getting far worse, and what's God going to do about this? Well, then you've got this genealogy of Seth. And if you take that genealogy of Seth, and I'm going to skip over, the, the sadly, the whole Old Testament here, but if you take that genealogy of Seth, and you compare it to Luke's genealogy in chapter 3, the back half of it matches up, so that you're looking at, finally, when you get to the New Testament, here is this one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, this promised child of Eve, and restore to us the land, and then, or the presence of God. And then in Revelation, to skip forward, finally, in Revelation 21, the, you have this beautiful picture of the Jerusalem, the new bride coming down, you know, from having a bride adorned for her husband, all of this good imagery, and it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will be their God. They will be his people. They will wipe every tear from their eyes. So this whole concept is, this is God's desire to be with us, to give us life. And even in the face of death, he would rather give up his own life than to abandon us unto Sheol and unto death. And so when we see that narrative, that, that whole narrative is for us, and it becomes ours. Like, we become incorporated into that in the start of the baptismal liturgy. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This life, this salvation, this death and resurrection of Jesus is now yours. And you begin to live in that life 
of Christ in this world. You wait for that great and glorious day when, by the sound of the trumpet, you will finally live with God face to face, though now he is veiled. And since he is veiled, he comes to us in his word and his sacrament, because there, as we face the temptations of this life, as we begin to think that the Lord has forgotten us, that he has forsaken us, that, you know, my grandma just died, my mother just died, and I'll no longer see them again, or I've contracted this terrible illness, and I start to cry out like the people of old in the Old Testament, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? He comes to me here and now, veiled in word and sacrament, saying, no, I love you, I forgive you, and you are strengthened. You are strengthened in your faith. You are kept secure in Christ. He holds you in that life, and you depart out of those doors to love and to serve your neighbor as God has loved and served you in Christ until that great and glorious day when you're with him forever. So this whole Christian faith is about living your life in Christ, and to live the Christian life is to be returning, to be returning to the Word, to be returning to the sacrament, to be called by Christ that you may be strengthened and that you may live your life always in Christ. So, so here's my question, because I, I, not to disagree at all, but now what Dr. Pieper's going to do on pages 42 through 44 of volume one of his dogmatic series is he's going to take that totality that you just gave us, and he's going to really say there's, there's four different levels of knowing this, and he's going to divide it up. And, and what... What, where it makes me a little uncomfortable, not that I want to question Dr. Pieper at this point, but is like, well, how much does a Christian need to know? And how much is, is not really uh, for the average Christian in the pew? Or is there any? Or how much of this is a matter of, well, vocation? I, I don't know. We're going to pick that up on the other side of this break. Cross defense here on Worldwide KFUO. We'll be right back. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio, the dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. As soon as you play, I'm playing. I'm saying my first drum second's your first beat. I'm saying first, you two feet, then we might stand up. Like first you get your hands, then I get your hands. Up my sound, your throat, my dance, your feet. You hear my no heartbeat. The metronome in your chest keeps you in time till there's no time. So you sing till you got no breath. And whoever's next dances to the song you've left. Music creates movements, inspire movements. Where I am, you've been. There is you, then there is music. Music follows you. The NLS Braille and Talking Book Program gives patrons with visual or physical disabilities the freedom to read their way. If you want to read in electronic Braille, you can. If you want to read on your phone, you can. If you want to read in heart print, you can. Everybody can read the way they want to read using this program. For more information about the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped Library of Congress, visit loc.gov slash that all may read. 
KFUO embracing today's technologies to bring the good news message of Christ to the world. Listening to Worldwide KFUO on the go with your smartphone doesn't mean you have to walk around with earbuds all day. You can Bluetooth or sync up to listen in your car while driving anywhere. There are many easy ways to listen to WorldwideKFUO.org. On the air, online, and on demand, the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO. Listen to Cross Defense, where Jesus is the first principle of understanding, and understanding comes on the other side of believing. Talking with Pastor Adam Filipek and Pastor Timothy Winterstein about Dr. Francis Pieper's Dogmatics, Volume 1, page 42, where he's got four points following here to distinguish levels of the knowledge of God. And again, my question is sort of like, okay, well, so is it... At what point does the does the does the the Christian get free to say, well, I passed catechesis class, so now I don't have to know anymore. So you know, I, I've got it all now. And I, I don't think that's what he's really wanting to get at. I think that's just the wrong way to hear it. But I can see how this language could actually lead us that way as well. So we're going to look at these four different levels or areas or or vocations of knowing theology and try to pull them apart here a little bit. So the first one is this. He says the special measure of the knowledge of God and the divine doctrine which public ministers in the congregation should possess. So that is, theology can mean the information a pastor knows. Scripture, he says, speaks of this form of theology when it says that uh, the episcopace, this is the, uh, the, the bishop, the overseer, it's a word that means pastor, who takes care of the church of God must be didatikos, which is apt to teach. This is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, able to teach. Well, what's he supposed to be able to teach? The pastor must have a special teaching ability. This matter, he says, will be discussed at length in the next chapter, uh, and then he gives a, a footnote from a Lutheran dogmatician of old named Quenstedt, where he basically says that this teaches and establishes the mysteries of the faith and is able to refute errors contrary to sound doctrine more accurately and copiously than, say, the average person in the pew. So, And I can see this in like a good way where it's like, the pastor is sort of the, he's sort of the plumber for theology in the church, right? So, so it's not like you don't know how to use your sink, but sometimes when your sink's broken in a certain way, you want someone who's like, oh, I've seen this before. It's this, this, and this. And and the pastor is supposed to kind of manage all of that. He's got the tool belt. It's not like you can't use the tool, but you're like, hey, can I borrow your tools? And he's like, yeah, here you go. Is that what he's kind of saying? I, I think it, I think that it's, it's, it's even almost a way of, of knowing, um, uh, I mean, I think I think there is a there is a sense in which pastors, uh, because of the time they've studied the Word of God, uh, not in a scientific sense, but in a hearing of the Word of God sense, um, the the time that they put in studying the Word of God is so that they can do that. Uh, and in that way, it's like a lot of other vocations where where you have somebody who has uh, knowledge and and. It's it's a, it's different though because it's not as far as Christianity is concerned. Uh, you know, I might not I don't know anything really about my brother's a material science major PhD. I, I really don't understand anything he's talking about, and it's probably not going to affect my life too much if I don't. Whereas, of course, Christian understanding of of the Word of God that that does have something to do with us, every person. Um, but it, it's almost a way of knowing, an, abil- an ability to rightly divide, for example, law and gospel. But I think, I just want to say that uh, I think Pieper gets at the point, it's not about amount, because 
he has a footnote on 43 about um, about those who are learned and unlearned about the centurion at Capernaum and about uh, um, and Ger- he co- he cites Gerhard about those who are learned and unlearned. So it's it's not so much about the amount as it is about a, a sort of a right understanding. And I tend to think of the small catechism as sort of that contains in miniature the confession of the scriptures that we have. Then you might go to the large catechism, to the Augsburg Confession, etc. And you're gonna you're kind of these circles that kind of go wider and wider. But it's the same understanding. It's not a different understanding as you go deeper. And I think that's the important point. I think that your acknowledgement of your brother as the material scientist, and mine with the plumber again, I think that kind of gets at something, though, because you said it's not going to affect your life if you don't necessarily know what he knows. But let's just say he's an engineer, right? It's not going to affect your life not to know what makes a bridge stand up, but if the engineer doesn't know it, that's definitely going to affect your life when you drive over the bridge. And and so you you want your pastor to—you might not need to know who Arius was, but you really want your pastor to know who Arius was, and you want him to defend you from Arianism, even if he never uses the word. Yeah, well, and that the case is I asked my brother about his dissertation, PhD dissertation, I said, you know, how, what does this have to do with, you know, what, in what way would this kind of connect with uh, something that I might know? And he said it doesn't. So I'm speaking in that sense. But you're right about, say, civic engineers. Um, clearly, I want them to know what they're doing, uh, even if I don't know the physics of it. Well, and also your point is really well taken. It's not a different knowledge, right? So the catechism and what you learn from the small catechism that the Jesus Christ became incarnate of the Virgin Mary is the eternal Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, that never changes even if you know how to defend it against Arianism's particular arguments from particular passages of Scripture. Pastor Philippe, we've gone, gone on without you for a little bit. You there? I am, and the doctrine never changes. The Word of Christ never changes. And that which is entrusted to the episcopus, the pastor, is his to teach, and it is, a foc- it is a focus on vocation. I find it interesting that he couples a knowledge of God and doctrine. He's going to repeat those two very, very closely. The knowledge and the doctrine serve that purpose. For the teaching, the teaching of whom? Well, the Church of God is what he says about First Timothy 3.5. This parallels nicely with Acts chapter 20, and I would say this is the important thing about the, the doctrine that uh, is, is given to be taught. Acts chapter 20, Paul appears to uh, some of the elders having come from Asia, some of the, and the elders being the uh, episcopus, the, the pastors there, and he says this, For I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you the whole counsel of God. Take care then among yourselves for the whole flock, among the Holy Spirit, has appointed you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained through his own blood. I know that after my departure, ravenous wolves will come to you, which will not spare the flock. And so there's this idea that this, this sound understanding, this sound confession of faith and knowing you know, the historicity of everything and Arius and all of those different things, knowing the defense of the faith helps to guard your Christ's church. He uses the pastor to guard, to guard the people against that false teaching and to proclaim that whole counsel of God. Another one of the thoughts that both of your comments have, have brought to mind for me now is 
it's not that the information changes, but that the more you're in it, the more it does tend to impact you in a certain way. And this this applies to anything that we know. One of my favorite little, speaking of material science, material science tidbits is how the brain works, that you basically shoot electrical bolts through your head, and those are your thoughts, and they bounce off these little... Uh, cells that we have based on how the salt moves about in your head, which is, is kind of nuts. But the more that you have the same pathway being taken, which generally means sort of the same thought or the same direction of thought, the more it, it, it kind of grows and it becomes a bit of a, a rut, not in a bad sense. It can become sort of a super highway in, in a sense. It becomes a habit. And so the more that you have the same words, the same ideas running through your head, the more it gets established, not just as an idea, but as, a, as the way that you think or the thing that you think with. And so in this sense, because the pastor is exposed to the Word of God in general, it really ought to be, more than the average person in the pew, there's going to be more ruts in his head with that Word of God. Now, this means you can't actually have this as a layperson. He's going to actually talk about this in a moment. You can go pursue this as well. Now, I'm going to add into the discussion. Feel free to comment back on, on that and stick with the same topic. But I want to add point number two as well here. He, he talks about now the difference between, say, the pastor's knowledge and then the professor's knowledge. And, and so it isn't just about school or isn't just about book learning. Like he's these, these are two different things he's talking about, being apt to teach or communicate on a popular level the deep things and then really going, and I think he's getting at here, going at that level of high level of scholarship. And I'll say something about that, too, and then throw it back at you guys. But he says, The knowledge of God and the divine doctrine which is required of those who train the future public teachers is another way of understanding theology. So professors who train pastors. These theological professors are called theologians in a special sense. Timothy performed the work of a theological professor when he committed the things he had learned from the Apostle Paul to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now, he, he says that they're... Uh, that they're theologians in a special sense, but he never tells us what that sense means. So here's my best read on it. There was a, a professor at the seminary we both, or we all had named uh, Dr. Cloa, and he was a specialist in what we call the, the critical apparatus, which is the, the bottom part of your Greek New Testament. If you've ever seen one, you remember, ask your, your pastor to show him yours. You'll see that there's the Greek text, and then there's this like really weird-looking bit of gibberish that it, you know, might as well be like a science project in the very bottom. It's called the textual apparatus. And what it is is a a tool for assessing all the thousands of copies of the New Testament that we have and the miniature like typos, the, the very small diversities that exist there. Maybe the word is spelled differently. Maybe the words are out of order. Every once in a while, you find something that's really weird, like you have a disagreement in this copy from that copy over there and trying to figure out, well, which one's right, which one's the original text and all that. As a pastor, I don't venture into that thing very often because I just don't feel I have the knowledge. But the professor who was teaching us about it, and at least so that we could see how it worked, he had to have like an even deeper level, which wasn't necessarily faith-specific, right? But it's just like high-end material science-only theology thing. <laughs> Stumble over my words at the end there, but but does that make sense? Or again, am I am I splitting a hair? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you have this... And and I think the other thing is about what you mentioned at the beginning about vocation. There is a there is, they have professors, as Pieper says, theologians in a special sense. They have the time to devote themselves to studying, and this is why you have a bunch of professors because they can't. There's not enough time for each for one of them to study everything. So they devote themselves to studying these different branches, and then they teach pastors or future pastors um, so that they can uh, have a, a 
uh, broad view, certainly not as deep, but a broad view of everything. And uh, one thing I want to emphasize, I think, is that uh, theology, especially when um, when pastors teach it, uh, if it's true theology, I, I'm convinced that if it's true theology, there it, you don't have to make the sort of leap between theory and practice that some people think. You know, I constantly, coming out of the seminary, when I first started, you'd hear, well, now you're in the real world. Huh. Um, and I, from my very first systematics class, Dr. Bierman made the point, listen, theology is eminently practical. And, uh, and if it's not, then actually it might not quite be true theology. Uh, so in some way or another, there, there's a, there, sometimes it has to be explained a little bit more, I think. But, but generally speaking, if it's true theology, it, it describes something uh, real about how the story of God's salvation in the world works, uh, how it has happened. And there's nothing theoretical about it. Um, at least in the sense that separates it from the practical. Now, I'm kind of going backwards a little bit here, but that really strikes me, uh, Pastor Winterstein, in that you know that story I told about the catechism resource that reminded me of some high-level you know, rocket science textbook and, and these diagrams trying to explain this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe I'm, I'm showing my postmodern colors here, but to, to me, the scriptures are less... A, a science to be dissected and piled into a bunch of uh, bullet points and, and slideshow presentation points, and it's more this overarching story, this narrative, in which there's definitely truth, and things like, or, well, it, gods like the Trinity definitely exist in Trinitarian theology, but the way that, this was why I wanted to teach Matthew, rather than necessarily go straight to the catechism, because it's delivered to us in a way in which we exist, which is practical, <laughs> It's in your face. It's the history of reality, and it's not this uh, super intellectualized, uh, pl- platonicized, abstract bunch of things that you just have to believe if you want to be a Christian. The first and second points here, coupled together, make it very practical and very applicable to our life in Christ, which we were discussing earlier. Because the first point hinges on the fact that this pastor has been given, this episcopus has been given, to take care of the Church of God by holding fast to and proclaiming the teachings, um, to actually articulating the faith and speaking that narrative of faith. The point, too, then, grounds itself not in some academic sense for academic sense, you know, an ivory tower academia, but... Point two makes it that all who train the future public teachers. So they're the ones who serve the ones of point one. And it immediately connects that this theology that is taught by seminary professors that is that are passed down is actually taught for the benefit of the people and for the immediate implications of the lives of the saints in any given congregation. Yeah, I, I think, and I, th- I think that's important to to recognize, um, because again, it's a, it's it becomes a sort of people tend to think of it like, oh, that's just something. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, that's that's good for pastors to know, but not for me. 
Um, and I want to I want to say, listen, this this is exciting. It's if if the if theology is boring, uh, the problem is not in the scriptures. Which again, that's what true theology it should be presenting. Uh, the problem is not in the scriptures; it's in us. Uh, I I really like Dorothy Sayers' point about the the dogma being the drama. And uh, that it, that if we some if we can if we make the scriptures boring, hmm. the fault is is by far uh, and only in us and not in the scriptures. I mean, there's nothing boring about the scriptures and in the presentation of that and what we call theology. You, you, to say to look and make the connections throughout the story and to see how God is actually working and to to look at the uh, the way that that uh, God has worked and is working. I mean, if we, if we find that boring, and if we have to somehow make the Scriptures relevant, like it's our job, like the Scriptures are not relevant right now, but, but it's somehow our job to make them relevant, there's, there's a fault in how we're viewing that, and the fault is in us. Uh, the, they are relevant. Maybe we're not yet completely relevant to them. And that's where I think will the change will take place, not in like, well, let, let's do all this dry theology stuff, let's make that relevant to our lives. No, our lives, we have to be made relevant to the Scriptures. Absolutely, Tim. And this carries through even to the divine service. I mean, the problem is always the heart of man. It's black, it's fought with sin, Mark 7, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. If I'm sitting in church saying, oh, geez, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee, and then start singing, this is the feast, and I'm thinking, why am I singing the same thing over and over and over? This is boring. Can't we do something new? What is wrong? The question has to come up. What is wrong with the Word of God? How has the Word of God changed? It hasn't. And there's nothing wrong with the Word of God. It is truth. Your Word is truth. I delight in your Word. I delight in your law. So the problem then is in me. I'm bored. I don't want to do this. I think this is. It's always in the heart of man. Which is, which is related to what we were saying earlier about, about well, I've learned the catechism, and now now I'm done. I passed the test. I've I'm confirmed, whatever the case may be, um, as if somehow going through two years of, quote, instruction in the catechism, you've somehow exhausted the, uh, the depths of the Word of God. Luther says, I, every single day, like a little child, I go back to the catechism. He doesn't mean his own explanations. He means the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the sacraments. He goes back every day, hears the Word of God, because he knows that they are inexhaustible uh, in their richness. And as soon as we start thinking we've somehow mastered any aspect of the Word of God at all, we should check ourselves and realize that, that our problem is, is a lack of faith in what the word of that it's living and active and not a dead word that we somehow have to bring alive 
It's it's a really fine line there too, as you mentioned, being exhausted. Well, you can't exhaust the Word of God, and yet I found many people come out of their catechism class feeling not that they've exhausted the Word of God; it's just exhausted them. And and the question is, why? What what are we doing to it? What are we stealing from it? What are we putting in its way as we use terms like theology to 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 strip it? of that story we were mentioning earlier, and yet you can't go too far with that because some of it's got to be our fault as well. I remember very much going to evening prayer at the seminary. Maybe you guys remember this. We were all classmates together, and I was with another one of our classmates, Pastor Robert Rebau, and uh, we were praying the litany, which if you ever pray the litany, it's in your hymnal, but it's kind of long. And I remember afterwards, I, I kind of said to Rob, I said, you know, that that's too long. I don't think we should do that kind of thing anymore. That's too long. And he just looked at me and he said, you're too short. And uh, it kind of struck me at that moment, you know, maybe I should, maybe it is the problem is me and I should focus on this word a bit more. We're going to do that in just a moment. Worldwide KFUO salutes our day sponsors on this Monday, August 21st, 2017. Today's day sponsors are Larry and Donna Troxel. Today's day sponsors have made a contribution to Worldwide KFUO in honor of Donna as they celebrate her birthday today. Once again, we say thank you to Larry and Donna Troxel of Quincy, Illinois. Today's Worldwide KFUO Day sponsors. Happy birthday, Donna. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. A total solar eclipse just crossed over America. Eclipses have a place in end times theology, and Islam is no exception. They believe it foretells the coming of their Mahdi. Dr. Timothy Furnish, an expert on Islamic history, is my guest as we discuss the eclipse and Islam on World Lutheran News Digest 2.30 Wednesday and 9.30 Saturday on Worldwide KFUO. Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds is a classic rock song of the 60s and to everything a season. The perfect setting for this National Senior Citizens Day. The lyrics were borrowed from the Bible in Ecclesiastes 3. Its last two lines, word for word. The Bible has a lot to say about honor due the elderly. From the Torah in Leviticus 19.32, you shall stand up before the gray head. From Proverbs 16.31, gray hair is a crown of glory. And in Job 12.12, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. Engage with the Bible and its influence in every sphere. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Listen to Cross Defense on a Monday afternoon, and yeah, there was a solar eclipse. I hope you got to see it. That was pretty intense. My eyes are hurting because even though you're not supposed to, I used glasses up until the point where it was fully eclipsed, and then I looked anyway, and I'm like, ooh, ooh, it doesn't feel so good. But it was quite an experience, and yet not the end of the world, if you didn't notice. Things are going on, which is why you should bring yourself back to the Holy Scriptures and the Word of God, and remember that signs are not given for us to see the end of, end of the world coming, but instead to remind us of the fallen creation and of the 
the one sign, the son of Jonah, which has redeemed us from it. That is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So anyhow, getting back to Dr. Pieper's four different types of theology, his third point that he gives, along with theology as pastors know it, theology as scholastics know it, if I can say it that way, the third one is the knowledge of God and the divine doctrine possessed by all Christians. And this is kind of like, well, shouldn't that be what it all is? And in a sense, it sort of is. He has a little Luther for us here. He says, these are our words for God to love the word world, which no one can exhaust or fathom. That was kind of your point, Pastor Winterson, before the break. And when they are rightly believed, they ought to make one a good theologian or rather a strong, happy Christian. He defines a good theologian as a happy Christian. I don't think that means dancing in the aisles. It means con- confident of where you stand on Judgment Day. A strong, happy Christian who can speak and teach ought of Christ judge all of the doctrines, counsel and comfort all men, and patiently bear all ills. And and so this is kind of answering, in a sense, my, my chief concern in this is that a Christian's going to hear this, and I think it was you again, Pastor Winterson, who said, they're going to say, well, I don't need to know any more that I know now. I learned enough about, about Jesus. That's I got enough to get through Judgment Day, and so I'm fine. Well, no, it really should all be the same thing, and you can always go deeper. And, and just because there's a, a knowledge that a scholastic might have, it doesn't really empty you of the value? I don't know. I mean, does that even make sense? I, mean, I think you see this uh, fairly regularly, and I wonder, though, um, if if someone, if someone really believes the Word of God, would they not hunger and thirst all the more for the righteousness of Christ and seek it out? And so we just had, you know, you're thirsty after walking through a desert, and you get a little water, can't drink it all at once. Um, uh, it might damage you, but then you drink a little more, and you you thirst for it. And uh, the Word of God, drinking, eating the Word of God, ought to make us hunger and thirst all the more. And so he says that uh, you can't even exhaust or fathom these small words in how God loved the world by sending His Son. Uh, that this is the love of God. How could you exhaust or and and so. To, and I think it's, a, it's an interesting point that, that um, people sometimes feel inadequate to defend the faith or to answer questions. But uh, Luther makes the point that uh, knowing just those sorts of words, uh, what we might call basic understanding of who Christ is, that that actually, uh, to understand that rightly, you, you would know when anything took away from that glory or when, it, when anything... Re- uh, subtracted from the work of Jesus, um, and that that would actually be enough. Uh, and but who would say, "Yeah, I've had enough Jesus. I want to just." <laughs> yeah, right. Have you ever had either of you guys ever had someone say, "You know, I don't want to go to Bible study because I'm afraid of asking the wrong questions." Yes. Mm-hmm. So what yeah. do you think? What, I mean, isn't that the same idea? It's like you're 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 forgetting the. The whole point is just to be filled? Yeah. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. With joy I will draw water from the wells of salvation. Christ is the the living water. And so when we receive that living water, he becomes the the well springing up in us to eternal life. And that well analogy and that water analogy that we're talking about is actually John chapter 4. After this for God so loved the world. But the sum totality is one in the same. To know for God so loved the world is to know who I am and to know who Christ is. Chief of sinners though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me, died that I might live on high, lives that I might never die. 
And when you understand that, it, it changes who you are. Christ changes who you are and how you go about living your life in Christ. And so you are able to then receive that living water. And then when you are in terror of your sin that week, saying, oh, I'm a Christian. Why did I do that? I know I shouldn't have done that. And when, when in all actuality, the entire devil and his demons come in and down on you saying, oh, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you should love God. I thought you should follow me. You look more like one of me. You can become comforted in knowing, yes, I deserve death and hell, but what of it? What of it? Christ has suffered, made satisfaction on my behalf. Where he is, there I will be also. And you can comfort those who have lost loved ones, those who are guilty with the same, who feel guilty of their sin with the same Jesus. And you can judge, like Pastor Winterstein said, you can judge when you're not hearing that sweet gospel message. Jesus died and rose for you. So we got a fourth point, and this is the one where I'm, I'm not sure I have an answer for what this one's getting at, so maybe one of you guys can teach me here. The, the knowledge and doctrine of certain parts of the Christian religion, namely the deity of Christ and respectively of the Trinity, are also a different kind of theology, right? A different level of theology. And he says, this use of the term theology has been and is quite general, we, too, call the doctrine and of the deity of Christ and of the Trinity theology in the narrower sense to distinguish it from cosmology, anthropology, Christology, ecclesiology, etc. So what he's saying here is, is just the deity of Christ and the Trinity are their own theology, and that's even separate from Christology. And that's where I'm, I'm just—he's got me on this one. I don't know. To me, uh, and I'm, I wouldn't— uh put too much confidence in myself in understanding this either, but it seems to be more of a historical point, because his footnote refers to Gregory, Nazianzen, and uh, Athanasius, um, and, uh, and Basil, that, uh, that they were talking about specific things, namely the, that Christ is God, and that uh, of the Trinity, and, and that because that's what they were defending, they were referring that to the theology. So, but it is a little confusing, I think, when he says it has been and quite is quite general. When it seems to be to me to be more specific, because he right after that he says theology in the narrower sense. Well, it's not working the same way as the other three points, then, right? The other three points are like describing vocations, and this is describing a, a, a system or a section or an idea. I, I want to make sure we've only got about eight minutes left here, and I want to hit this last paragraph more than point four. But I, I think that was very helpful, Pastor Winterstein. So thank you. And the final paragraph here, he says, we may use the terms theology and the theologia. In this fourfold sense, since the matter itself is found in Scripture. But it is an unscriptural use of language when men define theology as a knowledge of God and divine things, which, it is claimed, reaches farther than faith in the word of Scripture and expands faith into scientific comprehension. That is to say, when they say we can find the knowledge of God, we can find relationship with God, we can find truth from God 
beyond and outside of the scriptures, or maybe the scriptures are insufficient and need to be added to. This is the uh, the first lie of modern theology, the proton pseudos. You can hear pseudo, 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 um, pseudonym, right? False name. The pseudos is lie. The false lie, the first lie of modern theology in all of its various forms. And we have to keep on insisting that when men imagine that their theological knowledge rises above faith in the written word, they are deluding themselves. Their alleged knowledge is ignorance. And this is much of what his opening section is still really trying to do is establish the veracity, the trustworthiness of Scripture. But what I, I want to get to, because you mentioned this earlier, Pastor Winterson, and I speak this way as well, I don't think this paragraph is condemning our saying that everybody, you know, a Muslim is a theologian. They're pursuing a knowledge of God. It's just a false knowledge of God. He's more getting at that we would say that all knowledges of God, all theologies are equal, and that is, that's an error in and of itself. Thoughts, gentlemen? Um, yeah, just I'll say a short thing, and then I'll let Pastor Philip. Uh, the it uh, I really think he's getting back to the point of, you know, we see this in the way that people study the scriptures. Even you can have chairs of theology who are atheists or agnostics, or uh, uh, and they sort of view it as a general term, and so we're just going to kind of study it, and we can say this, but but to get behind the actual words to some other truth, you know, the search for a historical Jesus that's other than what, because there's the gospel writers are so biased that we, that we have to find something else behind it. But I, I really like that. The first lie is that somehow you can uh, get behind the words beyond faith or outside of faith and somehow discover some truth that's there. Uh, and, that's the first lie, is that you can do that. And because that is the first lie, I think that this is exactly how point four ties into this and how it ties the whole section together. He started by talking about back on page 42 that the reminder is here that this term theology is not scriptural, but what matters is that we use it uh, in a way that expresses scriptural ideas. And so Others who speak apart from Scripture aren't actually speaking about God. So point four, then, I would say, and how this works together with this section, point four, you could honestly say, and I hate to use this term because we already said that's not a great worry for it, but people's coming back in point four and saying, so you guys have been discussing about, you know, theology study of God here. You've been talking about this in a very academic sense. In point four, he would say, we too have this idea of study of God, if you will, this imminent versus economic trinity, meaning that imminent being just God and who he is, and so you've got the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you have is not, is not, is not, you know, but they're all God, and you have Christ who is God, and we're talking about those. We have that in a very narrow sense. We have a similar language like you do, and that is apart from the economy, of God actually coming down in the person of Jesus Christ, the Father sending the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we too use that term. And then the concluding paragraph. But we don't use it in the same way that you do. You use it in an unscriptural sense to define men thinking about God apart from the Word. That's your chief error. We do nothing apart from the Word. We keep on insisting that men imagine that their theology and knowledge rises above faith in the written Word. They are deluding themselves. So, to kind of make sense of that last section, then, 
Peter's tipping the hat and forcing. We think of it similarly, but we don't think of it apart from what God has revealed to us in Christ through his word. And so, yeah, we have this term about generally who God is, the Trinity and, and the deity, but all of that finds its grounding in the revealed word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. You guys go apart from that word, and that's where you go wrong. That's where you're false teachers. Everything hinges upon what God has revealed and said to us, and we must confess the same thing. I like that. So, so it's, you know, theology is what a pastor knows. Theology is what a seminary professor knows. Theology is what all Christians know. Oh, but by the way, this is actually something. This is, this is actually the text of Scripture, and if you're using the word to talk about what all Christians know, but it's not really the Bible, well, then you're just making stuff up and you don't belong. Uh, gentlemen, closing thoughts on the, on the morning, uh, morning, on the afternoon. Well, I think I think that was re- that what uh, Pastor Philip Heck said was really helpful here because um, that that we do we do have something that we talk about uh, within uh, that Jesus is God and that the Trinity, but we can't talk about it apart from the revealed Word, and I think that's Peeper's point throughout is to and and really this is this is the Lutheran. Uh, this is what I tell people. I mean, what do we do? We stick to the word as it is. We don't. If we can't, if it's not there, and somebody wants to know how or why, we say, I don't know. But this is what we have. The revealed things belong to to us and to our children to do forever. Hidden things they still belong to God, and we're not going to try and delve into them. Exactly. So I would re kind of label the theology as not as a study of God, but rather a, a confession of who God is and what he has done. You're saying the Apostles' Creed on Sunday, you're saying the Nicene Creed on Sunday, you're saying the Athanasian Creed, you're doing theology. You're receiving the Word made flesh and Word and sacrament. Christ is coming to you, forgiving your sins, strengthening you through the giving of his very body and blood. Theology is being done. God is coming to you. He is revealing himself, he's giving himself to you, and you are confessing the name of Christ. That's Pastor Adam Philippe, he's pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both up there in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Also talking today on Cross Defense with Pastor Timothy Winterstein. He is pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington, opening up Francis Peeker's Peeper's Dogmatics and reminding us that it is indeed eminently practical to know who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Thank you, gentlemen, for being on Cross Defense today. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. So I, I love one of the last things there that Pastor Philipsick said. You know, you're doing theology when you eat the Lord's Supper. You kneel down, knowing nothing but what Jesus has said. You, you take some bread and some wine on your lips, and you experience nothing but bread and wine on your lips and some words that tell you it is so much more. And the amen of faith rises up to believe that the death and resurrection of this man in history, in fact, makes that bread and wine more than what you could ever imagine or understand it to be. And yet, believing it to be what he says it is, you know who he is and how he has you. You walk away, amen, confident that he's coming again to save you. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, where old school School theologians never stop rocking on. I'm your host, Pastor Fisk. We'll catch you next week. Rock on.